Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, welcome to Basic Folk, Honest Conversations with Folk Musicians. I'm Cindy House, your host. Very happy to be here today. Uh, we have a folk music legend on the podcast today. Jim Queskin is our guest. And before we get into what we talk about, let's thank our sponsors. Basic Folk receives support from McDean, songwriters who love each other. McDean would be delighted to send you a free CD of their first EP, The Sampler Plate. Email lin at mcdean.co, lin at mcdean.co to get one. Jim Queskin is maybe the most famous person you might not know. You might know him, but you might not. Uh, with the Jim Queskin Jug Band, he mixed together folk and jazz, which invigorated the pretty much straight-laced Cambridge folk scene in the 1960s. That jug band went on to inspire other jug bands that later became acts like the Grateful Dead and the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. He was a regular at the Club 47, which is now known as Club Passim. Jim talks about how he came to the jug band style and how his band's relaxed stage presence changed the dynamic of the live folk show in profound ways. Jim also talks about his early life and his interest in music in general, but especially being drawn to early jazz from the 1920s and 30s, which at the time he was a young man growing up in like the 50s and early 60s and like basically was his he was the only one he knew except for his dad that listened to to that type of jazz so a very interesting early interest it would later come to define his musicality throughout his career we also talk about his very interesting connection to Bob Dylan and how Dylan took him to visit Woody Guthrie in the hospital towards the end of Woody's life Jim is a really interesting guy with so much historical knowledge on the topic of jazz, folk, and jug band music. So glad we got a chance to do this interview. Uh, we're going to take a listen to a song from a 2017 release he put out called Unjugged. It is his version of Stagger Lee, and then we'll get to our conversation with Jim Queskin on Basic Folk. Stagger Lee went down to the levee just about the break of day. He spied Billy gambling, so he sat down to play. Staggerly and Billy, they gambled, they gambled mighty late. Staggerly pulled a seven, Billy swore that he pulled an eight. Now Staggerly said to Billy, you can't get away with that. Bad enough to take my money, you can't have my Stetson hat. Staggerly said to Billy, you better get on by the track. 
I ain't gonna kill you now, but don't be here when I get back. All right, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. This is really, it's a pleasure to meet you. You too. Um, so uh, we're going to talk about uh, a lot of your life, you know, like an all-encompassing life interview. Um, so you grew up in Stanford, Connecticut, That's correct? That's correct. Okay, and you grew up listening to old-timey music that uh, was uh, you found in your father's record collection? Yeah, not exactly old-timey. Uh, old-timey usually refers to like old... Appalachian Mountain country music. Uh, that's the general term for that. But my father had, a, at one point in, in his younger life, he had a used furniture store. Uh, by the time I came along, he had a different kind of store. But he had, so he was buying and selling all kinds of furniture, including old phonograph record uh, players. In the old days, they were pieces of furniture, and they had, often had, records came with the, with the phonograph record players. Those, like, the tall, like, yeah, wooden things. like a cabinet. What is it? It smells like something. My parents have one, and it has, like, a very distinct, sharp, well, it's ancient probably, smell. Yeah, I don't I don't know what it is, but they, you're right. A- anyway, so they often had records in them. that the, So my father would go through the records and find the ones that he particularly wanted to listen to, and mostly they were early jazz, jazz from the 20s and early 30s. Uh, and by the time I came along, there were those records were in a cabinet in our house, uh, and it was people like Jelly Roll Morton, Sidney Bechet, uh, Louis Armstrong's Hot Five and Hot Seven, Big Spiderbeck, Bessie Smith. There was a couple of Lead Bellies. So was this the kind of music that like uh, like cool people were listening to in the twenty and thirties? Yes. Like hipsters? Well, I don't know. This, it was more like people who liked jazz. Um, there were different, many different forms of music, of course, going on in, in life at all times. But uh, jazz, well, you know, the 20s was called the jazz age, and so jazz was popular. Although most of the jazz that was popular was, quote, unquote, popular jazz. Mm. The, uh, the, the, let's say, more real jazz musicians were some of the great musicians of all time. You know, I mean, Louis Armstrong was an innovator, and uh, so was Jelly Roll Morton, and people like Fats Waller and Cab Calloway, and uh, they were all... And my father had records by all of these people, and it was music that had already gone out of popularity by the time I came along, because I was born in 1940, so by 49, 50, 51, in that era... Uh, that music was long out of style, but I fell in love with it. Yeah, what was it about it that was appealing to you? It's a good question, and I don't really know. It just appealed to me, and I, I, it was, it was everything about it. I just loved the way it sounded. I loved the way it felt. It just, you know, I suspect maybe, uh, you know, uh, you know, from a, maybe from a, if, if you believe in those things, from a previous life. I do, yeah. You know, I can I can get into that. Uh, me too, because you know, and nowadays you see kids come into this world who can already play the Mozart on the piano when they're five years old. So they must have come in already knowing how to do it to some yeah. degree. Anyway, be that as it may, uh, I fell in love with that music, and I was the only person that I knew other than my father who liked that music. My kids, I hung out with all my friends. They never even heard of it, let alone like it. And you know, and, and the music that was popular was what my friends were listening to, and 
in the, all through the 40s and into the early 50s, it was the popular music of the day, and it was, you know, people like Frank Sinatra and Nat King Cole and Peggy Lee and Tony Bennett and all those quote-unquote pop singers. Right. With um, that, that later on turned into, I, so I, I work in radio, and, and that type of music turned into like MOR, the format middle of the road. You ever heard of that? Yes, and yeah, and it would be that, yes, although some of it was a little edgier than that, but it was certainly uh, what became that kind of, you know, just kind of almost like elevator music. Mm. But, but, but some of it was very high quality. Some of it was really good. Um, and then in the late 40s and into the early 50s is when rhythm and blues started to come along. And my friends and love, and I did, loved rhythm and blues. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we got totally into Fats Domino and Chuck Berry and the Drifters and the Platters and doo-wop and all that stuff. So when I was in high school, pop music was still going on. And then in, around when I was 15, 16, Elvis Presley happened, and that turned into rock and roll. All of this was going on, and all of that music I did love. I, I, I loved rhythm and blues. I loved rock and roll. I loved pop music. I loved it all. You know, it was not every, everything, but the, the ones that I liked, the good ones. But still, I was also totally listening to early jazz, and I was the only one that I knew who was. Uh, was that something that uh, made, you know, made you feel different in a, in a good way? Yes. Yeah, sure. It, 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 although I wouldn't have minded if, if I had friends to share it with. You know, it was kind of like uh, it was something that I did with... I didn't know anybody else who liked that kind of music, and that, there's a little loneliness in that, too. Yeah. Did you and your dad share that in common, though? Could you talk to We liked to him it together, it? but we never sat around and just listened to records together. He would put, he would put some on at night. I mean, on and, and the weekends, on, like a, they would have a party. My friends, my parents would have a party, and they'd put on Benny Goodman records to dance to, you know, mm. stuff like that. Yeah. Because uh, that was the music that was popular when they were teenagers. And then sometime around when I was 13 years old, my parents sent me off to a, a summer camp. Oh, man, I love talking about summer camp. I can't wait. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> and... The thing about summer camp, besides it was fun, was that there were counselors who played the guitar and sang. And I had never met anybody who played the guitar and sang until I went to summer camp. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I mean, I had already heard folk music, and I was, actually, I liked Pete Seeger and the Burl Ives and the Weavers, you know. Weavers had a couple of big hits in 1949, 50, 51, you know, with Irene Goodnight and On, on Top of Old Smokey. They were folk music hits long before the folk music craze of the early 60s. Was it the, uh, were the Weavers being played on, like, what the equivalent of Top 40 radio yes. was? Oh, it's so it's wild. Yeah, and, and, but they were backed up by an orchestra, mm-hmm. and so they made commercial records, and they had about three or four major hits. I mean, like, number one, they had Irene Goodnight was a number one hit on the radio, written by Lead Belly, who had died just, like, six months before the song became a huge... Oh, man, that's too bad. Yeah. So I fell in love with folk music as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so here I am loving early jazz and loving folk music mm-hmm. uh, independently. And to me, they were two completely different kinds of music. So you like these two different styles of music, folk and jazz. Um, can you maybe tell the story of how you thought to bring those together? That's the interesting part. 
um, to me for my life. I really thought of them as two completely different kinds of music because folk music was like ballads and Appalachian songs and, and uh, like, say, Pete Seeger, you know, and, uh, and jazz was jazz. But no, and remember, in, in 1950, if you were, you said you loved jazz you were most likely talking about what was popular in jazz or what was happening in the avant-garde of jazz of the day. You know, and then you'd be talking about Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker and bebop and progressive jazz. That's not the jazz I liked. I liked it okay, but what I was in love with was the early jazz from the 20s and early 30s. But anyway, that's just a distinction. Mm -hmm. That's that was important. important to me. Yeah. Um, so, so I loved early jazz. That's why I always say early jazz, so to, to distinguish it from what, the other jazz. I loved early jazz, and I loved folk music. Then I went to college. I graduated high school and went to college in 1958 and went to Boston University. And the Terriers? Then I, pardon me? Is it the BU Terriers? BU Terrier, yeah. Yeah, BU. go Terriers. <laughs> <laughs> and I started hearing people playing swingier folk songs, songs that were jumpy and and jazzy. Especially there was this one guy who was around in the day, his name was Eric Von Schmidt. And I loved his music and he I wanted to hear him play at the very well-known folk venue of the time called the Club 47 mm -hmm. in Harvard Square. Now Club Passim. Now Passim. And he was playing one of the songs he played was Buddy Bolden's Blues. He was just playing the guitar and singing the song. But I knew it as a Jelly Roll Morton jazz tune, early jazz tune. And it was like, wow, you can do that? You can take these old jazz songs and play them on the guitar and sing them kind of like a folk song. And it was like a light bulb went off in my brain. It was like, oh my God, all these songs that I've, all this style of music, this swing, ragtime, jumpy music that I loved so much could actually be played and sung on the guitar. And that headed me off in the direction. And then I started finding people like Jesse Fuller and Pink Anderson and, and Blind Blake and all these other earlier 20s artists who did similar things and then eventually led me to the early jug bands, the Memphis Jug Band, the Dixieland Jug Blowers, and Gus Cannon's Jug Stompers, all of whom were basically doing that. They were playing old-time jazz on folk music instruments. And that's what Jug Band is. Yeah, can you give a little bit more historical background of the Jug Band? Well, Jug Band started in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, they were first recorded around 1926. Uh, there were three major Jug Bands. They were all black musicians who lived in the South. The three most famous was the Memphis Jug Band, obviously from Memphis, Gus Cannon's Jug Stompers, also from Memphis, and the Dixieland Jug Blowers from Louisville. Um, they usually consisted of a jug player who took the bass line. Jug was kind of like a folk version of a tuba. Uh, homemade instruments, washboards, wash tubs, kazoos, harmonicas, fiddles, you know. Uh, but And they were, they started I'm sure I wasn't there, you know, and uh, nobody that's around now was, but they started before, you know, they were going before they were recorded, 
And you just have to assume that these guys were just jamming together, you know. They they were just, you know, a guy would play the guitar and sing a song and mm -hmm. somebody would join in on a harmonica or somebody to fiddle and before you know it, somebody's playing the washboard and then they just, I'm sure they just grew out of the local music scene. Yeah. And then uh, when, they, when the record companies, the big record companies finally in the mid-20s finally realized there was a market for rural music, they discovered these jug bands and those three became quite popular. Do you think the uh, using the jug was just out of necessity of not having you know the money to buy an actual instrument? I think that's a lot to do with it. I'm sure those those guys were dirt poor, you know, and most of them, you know, maybe a few of them had, you know, they they might they they probably had jobs other than being musicians. Some of them I know did. Uh, but even the ones that were musicians were playing on the streets, you know, and they maybe in a bar, you know, and they weren't making a lot of money. And mm -hmm. nobody could afford hundreds of dollars for a tuba. Right. Uh, but that's true. The washboard was a, something you could buy at the hardware store with some thimbles and that you didn't, so you couldn't, you know, if you couldn't afford a drum set, you could you could play the washboard. And if you couldn't afford a trumpet, you could play a kazoo, you know, and harmonicas were not that expensive. Fiddles were a little more expensive, but you could usually find an inexpensive one at a pawn shop or something like that. So they it was a they were rural people, mm -hmm. so they were more they tended more towards rural music, and they didn't read music. They weren't like you know most of them were not didn't go to conservatories, so they were playing by ear, mm -hmm. and and they were singing. A lot of the guys were just saying blues. You know, large percentage of the early jug band music was blues, country blues, but they were, um, these guys were, a lot of them were playing the guitar or the banjo and playing blues, uh, and then these other guys would just join in on, you know, jugs and washboards and wash tubs and harmonicas and fiddles and whatever other instruments were easy to obtain and didn't cost a lot of money. And that's basically how jug bands started. Mm-hmm. And they became very popular in their area. I mean, it wasn't like a big national craze. Right. But they sold quite a few records. Like regionally uh, successful. Yeah. Regionally yeah. And, and in the South from about 1925 to 1935. And then, like most of the rural music, it lost its popularity or lost its ability to be recorded because of the Depression. People just couldn't afford to buy records. Oh, right. Wow. Okay. So uh, th that's why there was a big change in the recording industry. Mm. Um, almost it's interesting to think about, um, like, the, like, that aspect of, like, the Depression sort of, like, devastating the progress of music. What I've heard, I don't know if this statistic is 100% accurate, but it's close. In 1928, there were 50 million records pressed. And by 1933, there were five million records pressed. Wow. Wow. That's how devastated the record. And not only because of the Depression, but also because of radio. Oh, interesting. Because people could listen to music for free if they had a radio. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to go out and buy a record. Right. So it also affected the sale of records. And it didn't really pick up again until World War II when people started having money again, when the mm -hmm. economy came back. Interesting. Can you tell the story of how the Jim Queskin Jug Band came together? It's a pretty interesting one. <laughs> well, let me say that 
in the early 60s, as I was learning how to play the guitar and starting to perform, I started learning these, what people called ragtime, it really wasn't classic ragtime, that's a whole other thing, that's, that's another genre altogether, that's Scott Joplin and that's a world that was wonderful music, I love it, but that's not really what I played, but I played ragtimey kind of folk songs, mm -hmm. you know, jazzy kind of folk songs. Uh, and I had learned them from recordings by mostly people from the, or some of them, I, most people in the 20s and 30s, but some of them I learned from the actual people themselves uh, who were still around, you know. They were, they were, you know, they recorded in the 20s, and this is the f 60s. They were 40 years older, so if they were in their 20s at the time, they were in their 60s now. Mm -hmm. They were still around, Jesse Fuller and, you know, and then many of these other, Pink Anderson, and many of them were still kicking. But anyway, I would meet them, and I would learn songs from them. I learned Sugar Babe from Matt Lipscomb. I learned Good Time Charlie's Back in Town Again from Spider John Kerner, who was my contemporary. Um, I heard records and learned a lot of these old tunes. If I Could Shimmy Like My Sister Kate was an old jazz tune and, and stuff like that. Anyway, so I was starting to play ragtimey, jazzy folk music. Mm -hmm. Traveling around the country, learning songs, meeting people with record collections, uh, meeting artists who played also that kind of music. Rag Mama by, you know, first by uh, Blind Boy Fuller, and then I learned it from Steve Talbot in Berkeley and blah, blah, blah. By the time I got back to Cambridge, after I'd been in and out a number of times traveling around the country, uh, I was doing gigs at the Club 47 and playing this kind of music and often getting other people to jam on stage with me harmonica players and fiddle players and uh, other singers and mandolins and fiddles, banjo, whatever. We, we'd have, sometimes we'd have five, six, seven of us on stage just jamming. Mm. Not necessarily, you know, we, we'd, we'd be in the back room, work up a couple of tunes for the, just for the fun of it and get up on stage and play them for the audience, you know. And it was always billed as the Jim Queskin. It wasn't Jim Queskin band. It was, it was just, it was supposed to be my gig, but I always just dragged people up on stage with right. me. So, unbeknownst to me, one night at the Club 47, the president of Vanguard Records was in the audience. His name is Maynard Solomon. He's the guy who, had a year earlier, had signed Joan Baez, and they, he had, you know, they had uh, um, Mimi and Dick Farina, uh, Ian and Sylvia, Buffy St. Marie. They had. Did a, he live in Cambridge? No, they were in New York. Oh. He came up from New York. Uh, the Vanguard was a New York record company mm -hmm. anyway I didn't know he was there but after the show he came up to me and said I love your music how would you like to make a record with that band and I said well I'd love to make a record but that's not a band right <laughs> give me three or four months and I'll put a band together and I'll make a record for you and so I had a record contract before I had a band that was not typical at the time totally no. not typical yeah. I mean, who hires somebody to put a, put together a band to make a record? <laughs> right. You know? Like hiring somebody to build a house who doesn't know. Yeah, exactly. I'm interested in And it. I had never I had never led a band. Yeah. I didn't have a band. You know, I had jammed with people, but I'd never led a band. Anyway, I went around, found the people that I wanted to be in the Jug Band at the time, some really good musicians, friends of mine. I could name them if you would like me sure, to. Sure, go for it. Um First person I called was Fritz Richmond, who was a fantastic washtub bass player. Uh, he'd been around the 
Boston Cambridge scene, you know, for a long time. He was still my age, but he was a little, little year older than me. But, but uh, how old were you at the time that this was? Twenty three. Yeah. And, magic age when it all comes together. <laughs> and um, so I called Fritz, who happened to be in California at the time that happened, and I said, "Hey, I'm forming a jug band, and you got to play the wash tub bass, and you got to learn how to play the jug." <laughs> and he did. And that's a whole other story, but he became a, a master jug player, actually. Wow. Uh, there's recordings of him, or he was he played a number of times on the Prairie Home Companion, playing things like the Flight of the Bumblebee on the jug. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was great. Anyway, so I called Fritz, and I said, come on back. We got, we're performing a band. And then I, I was not a blues singer. You know, I sang jazzy songs, and I needed... For a jug band, you need some of it's got to be blues, a lot of it's got to be blues. So, and I, the person I had record performed with uh, at other shows, not on the same bill together, not not that we played music together, but we we're on the same bill together, was Jeff Muldor, and he was two years younger than me, so he was only like twenty or twenty-one. Um, you have to get stu the drinking age was not twenty-one at the time. Uh, I think it was eighteen. Yeah, but, uh, didn't have to sneak him into clubs. <laughs> But well, uh, Club Forty Seven was not didn't serve alcohol. Right. Still doesn't. It was a no, coffee they, house. They do now. Oh, they do. Yeah. They serve wine. Wine and beer. Oh, yeah. cool. Anyway, uh, so I got Jeff Muldor to sing to do the blues, and then I had uh, I needed a banjo player. So the the only one I knew was Bob Siggins, who was with banjo player with the Charles River Valley Boys, who told me he would join the band, but he could only be for six months or so because he had to go off and be a scientist. He was a and which which he did for he was a physicist actually for you know, the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. He also played banjo, but he gave up his well not not his, his full time job was a physicist. Anyway, mm -hmm. Bob Siggins on banjo, and then my friend David Simon, who was a harmonica player and also sang. So that was the first jug band, and we recorded, we rehearsed and rehearsed for like three or four months, mm -hmm. and worked up a whole bunch of tunes from songs we'd heard, songs we found, songs that people. I mean, we did a song called Washington at Valley Forge, which was taught to me by Dave Van Ronk. Um, I don't know how you know who that is, yeah. but, and, um, or was. Anyway, we made our first record with that, with that group. And that, was, that was the formation of the jug band. Were there other jug bands around at that time? Well, we were the first one to actually start to, what, what you'd call the jug band thing. Uh, but a very shortly after we started, there was a guy who was with Electra Records, a producer for Electra Records named Paul Rothschild, who actually went on to produce Janis Joplin and The Doors and like, like later on. But right then, he heard us and he wanted us to record for Electra. And I said, well, no, I already promised Maynard Solomon I'd do for, for Vanguard. It's a so. bidding war? Huh? Was there a bidding war? Well, it was not a bidding war, but there was competition. But I, I refused. I had already. I mean, Maynard is the one who, you know, inspired me to put the band together in the first right. place and said he'd make a record with us, and I wasn't about to jump to ship to another record company. Mm -hmm. So he decided to put together his own jug band, and he put together a jug band in New York called the Even Dozen Jug Band. And that had a stellar lineup of musicians, who many of them went on to incredibly good musical careers like uh, David Grisman, uh, Maria Moldor, who was Maria D'Amato at the time, John Sebastian, uh, Stefan Grossman. Did he Grossman. do the Welcome Back, Cotter? 
Yeah. John, John Sebastian. Well, he was also the lead singer and songwriter for The Love and Spoonful. Oh, there you the, go. He wrote What a Day for a Daydream and Do You Believe in Magic mm. and Summer so in the City. So he's written some songs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and he's, he still plays jug band music. Oh, wow. And, um, and other stuff, but he's, he's, his, his moniker is Jug Band Man. So he's, he was definitely at the jug band. But anyway, our jug band was the first one to start the new craze of jug band music mm. that was, well, not craze, but the popularity of jug band music. Can you talk about what it might have been like during that time to come on to such like an established folk scene? Maybe like a little bit about what that scene was like when you started playing the jug band style and what it was like to do something so completely different and what you brought to that scene. Well, we were different in many ways. We weren't just different in the kind of music we played. Because remember, by 1963, folk music was popular. It started to get popular in 58 when the Kingston Trio had a big hit of Tom Dooley. And that spread around, and all of a sudden there was folk acts popping up. There was the Journeyman and the, the Chad Mitchell Trio and the Highwaymen and... and uh, Brothers Four and there all these commercial folk acts. Eventually, it's Peter, Paul, and Mary. Um, so folk music was popular, and they all they, these were acts that were like very formal. They wore uniforms. They wore or they wore similar clothes. They had a set comedy patter. They would tell the same stories. They would everything was a, a performance, mm -hmm. a, a show that they were ready, slick, and ready to put on. Mm -hmm. We got up on stage. We wore our street clothes. We talked about whatever the heck we wanted to talk about. We just made up stuff, you know, and just talked about what was happening that day. We were very informal. Uh, it was kind of like the beginning of folk music just being uh, folks, you know, like just natural. Right, less theatrical. Exactly. We had no shtick, as they say in show business. Uh, so there was that difference and we were playing a music that nobody had ever, at least none, none of the young audiences that we were now playing for, college audiences mostly, uh, had ever heard before. But they loved it. I mean, the, my band was an immediate success. I mean, the, as soon as we got out, as soon as we started performing, we were very, very, very well accepted. And we immediately started playing the Newport Folk Festival, and we got on national TV, and uh, it was uh, it was very you know gratifying. Um, That's when my parents finally accepted the fact <laughs> that I was a musician. They, didn't, <laughs> they weren't they were buying it before. <laughs> no, they wanted me to go to business school as a backup, which I did for a little while. But Is that they, what you went for at BU at first? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then you know, and then finally when the Jug Band got hit, got on television and and all over the concerts and playing in Carnegie Hall and. All these places, then they finally said, "Oh, I, well, I guess that's what he's going to do with his life." Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so I heard that you uh, visited with Woody Guthrie. One time, Bob Dylan took me to meet him. Uh, he was at a hospital facility in Brooklyn. Woody was uh, sick with Huntington's disease, Huntington's chorea, it's called. He was very shaky. It's a, it's a nerve disorder, mm -hmm. and he was not fully controlled. It was, but it was sad. But he sure loved Bob Dylan because he, you know, what he wanted 
when we went there, all they wanted was Bob to sing him his Woody songs. Oh, wow. That's so funny. Like, sing my songs. Yeah, well, but he didn't, you know, it's not even that he said that. He couldn't even say, he could hardly talk. He was oh, very shaky. Yeah. His body was very, you know, like his, his limbs were flailing around a lot. Mm. It was very, that's what I mean, it was sad, you know. But he, he could smoke still, he, which he did. He was famous for smoking cigarettes and... And Dylan sang songs for him, and he loved it. I just sat there, and and they had the relationship. I had right. just, I have. He, Dylan had been, been to see him a number of times, mm-hmm. and Woody really liked him a lot. So yeah. I just sat back and watched them interact like with a, each other. That's incredible, like a, to be a fly on the wall. Yeah. For that moment. Yeah. And um, what was your connection to Bob Dylan? Well, we were both young in the Greenwich Village. I was in the village for a number of months in the winter of 62. And I got a gig at the Gaslight Cafe. Um, and there was four shows a night at the Gaslight Cafe. The first set was Peter Stampfell. I don't know if you know who that is, but he eventually mm-hmm. formed the Holy Modal Rounders. And uh, then the second set was me. And the third set was Dylan. And the fourth set was the three of us together as a trio. And that went on for a couple of weeks. So oh, wow. that's where I first, and then we were hanging out in the village together. When we were, he was 22 and I was 23. or oh, No, yeah, he was 21 and I was 22, something like that. So in the program book for Dylan's first New York show, uh, he lists his favorite singers, which included you. Is that true? I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, did he ever tell you that, hey, you're, you're one Well, of he my called favorites. me up on stage to perform with him at the Gertie's Folk City, which I did. He was playing, had his first gig at Gertie's, and I was just sitting there in the audience, and he called me up. I said, come on up. And we oh. did a couple songs together. Well, your name was in the program, apparently. <laughs> it was? Oh, I didn't know that. But anyway, I wasn't, I, I wasn't on the, sh- I didn't, well, I don't know. I, I guess so, but yeah. Oh. I actually have a recording of that. Oh, you do? Of me and him together. Wow. It's not that good. <laughs> <laughs> it's not your favorite. Um, were you at the 65 Newport Folk Fest? Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, where D- Dylan went electric. Oh, yeah. Um, what was your take on that? My jug band, we were at the Newport Folk Festival in 1964, 65, 66, 67, and 68. Five years in a row. And my take on it was basically that it was just too loud. It wasn't bad music. It was good music. I mean, have you ever seen the film Festival? Have you ever seen the film Festival? I don't think so. Oh, you should see that film. Murray okay. Lerner made a film called Festival, and all it is is the music from the Newport Folk Festival. Uh, if you don't have it, I could get you a DVD of it. Do you have a DVD player? I do. It's I'll a Blu-ray, but it plays DVDs. Good, because I'll get you one. But um, anyway, Dylan did songs like Maggie's Farm, and it was with the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Mm-hmm. So the the other guitar player, the one who was doing all the crazy, wonderful stuff, was Mike Bloomfield, who was the original guitar player, electric guitar player with the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, and it was Sammy Lay on drums and Jerome um, Jerome I forget his sack last name on bass. Getting old, I forget people's <laughs> names. You've done a, you've mentioned many names. Uh, anyway, it was it was the. It was it was the Paul Butterfield Blues Band without Paul Butterfield. It was so it was they were backing up Dylan, mm-hmm. and it was nothing wrong. It was great music, was great. But what happened is you know you, you imagine you're listening you're, you're sitting there in an audience, listening to Joan Baez or people like Theodore Bickell or Judy Collins with their guitars singing quiet, beautiful ballads and folk music, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden, on comes this band with 
ear-splitting volume. I mean, just ear-splitting. It was so loud, it hurt your ears. And that's yeah. what the, that's what that's what drove everybody crazy. It was just, it was the wrong time. It was the wrong. Also, kind of sounds like it was a bad mix. Yeah. Well, I, it was just too loud. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, the the ones on stage, they didn't know. They, they couldn't tell. They were so loud. They just they right. were just they were just in the groove. So uh, Club Forty Seven, now Club Passim, we yeah. talked about that quite a bit. Um, it was a, a huge part of your career. Um, what did it mean to you to play there and, and be part of that Club 47 world? Well, there was a very sharing scene. Uh, in many ways, um, music, the music of those, the scene of those days was people gathering together. We would have parties. We would share songs. Oh, have you heard this one? Oh, listen to this. Oh, do this one with me. Blah blah blah. Back and forth. Eric von Schmidt and and Dick Farina, Mimi and Dick Farina, and and uh, Jeff Muldor and me and Joan and and people coming in who were coming from New York who were you know passing through. Could be Dylan. Or it could be Dave Van Rock. It could be many different you know artists who were you know Richie Havens, uh, um, Tim Harden was there. You know Tim Harden? Mm hmm. Um, See, lady came from Baltimore. Yeah. And. Uh, if I were a carpenter? Re yep. Oh, really? And then Reason to Believe, right? Mm hmm. The old Rod Stewart song. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, there was, so it was a scene, but it was a very non competitive scene, which is what I love so much about it. It mm -hmm. wasn't like somebody out trying to outdo each other, trying to play faster, trying to play better, trying to sing louder. It was. It was a there was a togetherness about it, which I absolutely loved, and that lasted a good, you know, several years. You know? Then, of course, like everything else, it faded away into getting older or getting careers or becoming mm. famous or not becoming famous or, you know. But for a number of years, it was really wonderful. Can you talk a little bit more about your connection with Jeff Moldar? Um, and like what works about your collaboration and from what I understand there was um, a chunk of time where you stopped playing together but came back to playing together. So Jeff Muldor and I, first time we played in any venue together or at least in the same venue, there was a concert that somebody put on, uh, was called, it was just the two of us but we didn't, I think we did one or two songs together but it was called the Bittersweet Blues of Jeff Muldor and the Good Time Music of Jim Queskin. And he did the first set, I did the second set. I think we did a couple. So I went over to his apartment and I think, you know, we just got to know each other a little bit. And I loved his singing. He was just a really good blues singer and, and he was a very talented musician. Um, and so that's the reason why when it came time to form the Jug Band, he was, you know, Top choice. Mm -hmm. I wanted him for the band because he was such a good blues singer. And also it turned out, which I didn't know at the time, he's also a great arranger. And he arranged a lot of the songs, you know, the the tempos and the keys and the harmonies and the, all that kind of stuff. So it was a good collaboration. And and um, we worked well together. We fought a lot. We argued a lot. We still do. <laughs> you know, we still 
get mad at each other all the time, you know. But that's I feel like a mark of a good relationship where you you can get mad at your you yeah. get mad at your friends and <laughs> mad at your friends, yeah, and and still they're your friends. Yeah. And uh, so we were in the jug band together for the five years, and then I broke up the band in '68, and then he went off and did his many things. You know, he made albums with Maria. Uh, he made some albums. He was with the Paul Butterfield, another Paul Butterfield band called Better Days. He quit music for a while and was working in Detroit doing computer work and uh, for a big company in, in Detroit. And so we didn't see each other. And then in 05, Fritz Richmond, the one I was telling you about, the washtub bass player, passed away. And at the same time, there was this man doing a documentary on the history of jug band music. It's called Chasing Gus's Ghost. You should have a copy of that, too. Okay. <laughs> it's I a good thing we're those. recording this. <laughs> so I can go back and fake check it all out. Yeah. Um, anyway, Fritz died. So they, they, there were people who wanted to do some benefit, or not benefit, but memorial concerts. And also, the guy who was doing the, the documentary wanted to do a concert to promote the, the, the documentary both here in the States and in Japan, <clears throat> where they love jug band music, actually. Wow. So Jeff and I got together again, and we hit it off musically. I mean, you know, and our relationship hadn't changed one bit. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's still the same today as it was in 1962. We still fight all the time and argue and give each other a hard time and love each other and have a wonderful time. As a matter of fact, I'm doing some gigs with him coming up this summer. Oh, wow. Um, Do you feel like Jeff is kind of a past life friend? I don't know. Maybe so. Yeah. We did an album together about three years ago called Penny's Farm, and I'm very proud of that album. It's quite, you know, it, it's a good collaboration. Anybody uh, hears this, get it. Get it on CD, baby. <laughs> um, so Jeff and I go back a long way, and it's a good collaboration. We, we, we really enjoy playing music together. Um, okay, uh, so we do this thing called the lightning round. Okay. It's only going to take a couple minutes. Okay. All right. Basic Poke is brought to you in part by Tina and Her Pony, a queer duo bringing traditional Appalachian music and vocal harmonies into the 21st century. Visit tinaandherpony.com. And thanks to WIUP in Indiana, Pennsylvania, which airs Basic Folk 2 p.m. Eastern every Saturday you can listen on 90.1 if you're in the Indiana, PA area or at their website, WIUPFM.org. All right, here we go. So, do you like dogs, cats, or something else? Dogs. What is your... No, both. Okay. Uh, that answer is also acceptable. Mm -hmm. um, do you have a dog or a cat? I have had. Not right now. Okay. Uh, what is your coffee order? Mint tea. What's the first album you bought with your own money? The first record I bought with my own money was Fats Domino doing uh, Maybelline and Chuck Berry. No, I mean, Chuck Berry doing Maybelline and Fats Domino doing, Domino doing Ain't That a Shame. They were 78s. I was 15 years old. Do you remember how much they were? In the cents, 39 cents, maybe something like that. It's pretty cool. Um, do you remember the first concert you went to? Uh, yes, I went to a midnight concert at Carnegie Hall 
uh, a memorial concert for Charlie Parker. And it started at midnight. And my, I had two aunts who lived in New York City and took me there. And it was like all the great jazz musicians of the day were there. It started at midnight? It started at midnight. How and old, until 4 o'clock in the morning. I was 14 or 15. Did you make it all the way to 4 a.m.? They didn't, so they took me and I had to oh. <laughs> I would have. Oh, it sounds like me. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Night. Uh, when you uh, play guitar, Gibson, Martin, or Fender? Martin. If you could choose one, flying or invisibility? Flying. All right, great. Jim Queskin, mm. thank you for doing the lightning round and for taking so much time to talk to us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. So during that interview, Jim um, tells me that I need to see the documentary festival and the documentary uh, about the history of jug band music called Chasin' Gus's Ghost. And uh, to his credit, afterwards, he was like, send me your mailing address and I'll send you those DVDs. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure, Jim. And I sent it to him and like, you know, five to seven days later in the mail, I had you know, two DVDs. They're right here. So thanks a lot, Jim Queskin, for being a, a good on your word. Uh, thanks to Laura McCarthy for producing Basic Folk. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. I'm Cindy House. You can subscribe to our newsletter at cindyhouse.net. That's also where you can find show notes and previous episodes of Basic Folk. You can join our Facebook group, Basic Folk Basics is what it's called and we'll talk to you next week thanks so much for listening to basic folk bye